From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. Great to be back in the chair. Coming up this afternoon, we will get you that update on wildfires in BC. We're expecting to learn more about that right after the 12.30 news. Also, a very interesting case involving a Saskatchewan farmer who ended up facing a pretty hefty bill, all because of an emoji he used. We'll explain that a little later on as well. Starting the show, though, Mike Klassen, Vancouver City Councillor, is joining me in studio. Councillor, thank you so much much for uh, being with us and coming on the show today. Uh, my pleasure. And I love that phrase in studio. Um, so <laughs> it was a long time that we did not have in studio guests. <laughs> I was the second person to go in studio post COVID with Jazz Joe Hall. And yes. apparently I am the first. Yes. With for, Jill Bennett. Yes. So we very much appreciate you being here. Excellent. And uh, yeah, we will have more, more in studio guests. Uh, lots to talk about today when it comes to issues, uh, things that are happening in Vancouver, but wanted to start off with something that seems to be getting a fair amount of attention. There we go. This is a shotgun city. All right, so that credit, uh, that was uh, some video shot, uh, was being shared on Reddit by I am a sloth. That was the username on Reddit that shared that. Uh, Mike Klassen, you were on the stage when that was happening with the mayor. Tell us what was happening there. So uh, it's festival season, and we are going out. uh, The mayor, myself, fellow councillors are showing up at all the events, and there's usually a point at the event where uh, there's a stage, and we get to bring a greeting. And in this case, um, the Catsilano Festival on 4th Avenue, my rough guess is there were about 100,000 people in the streets between Burrard and Vine. It was just an unbelievable scene, people having so much fun. Um, there's a stage on the broad end, the sort of the east end of the Fourth uh, Avenue there. And uh, uh, we were asked to come on stage and, and do some greetings along with the organizers. And uh, after um, a really excellent uh, land acknowledgement with representatives of the Musqueam and Squamish First Nation, the mayor took the microphone and quickly read the room. Uh, <laughs> I think he realized that this crowd was not more there to hear political speeches. And uh, he saw some people in the front row that had some cold ones in their hand. And he, and he challenged them to a, a shotgunning of a beer. <laughs> so how many people? I mean, we, we saw the three of you on the stage. Were there a lot of people that took part? Uh, no, I think it was two people came up from the crowd and okay. myself and the mayor uh, were uh, involved. Yeah. Okay. All right. That makes sense because in what I was looking at it too, it was uh, Mayor Ken Sim, Councillor Mike Classum, and other man. And I always kind of laugh thinking the person who becomes the end other man but isn't identified. So but that was just somebody from the crowd that came up? I, I think he just walked back into the crowd and, and we'll never know who he is. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of people are looking at this, and I'm quite like we are right now, having a bit of a laugh. Like you said, it was the mayor reading the room. It was a festival. It was a hot, sunny day. There, of course, is some criticism as well. People saying that the mayor is is out shotgunning beer rather than looking at the important issues of the city, whether it's housing, whether it's other issues. What do you say to the criticism of what happened on that stage? 
I think it really is refreshing to have somebody who can just be themselves in that situation. I think people are kind of tired of the the stiff speeches, the the typical uh, kind of framing that all political folks have to do all the time. And this is a case of something that was completely spontaneous and uh, really was kind of going with the flow when we were up there. But uh, the the issues that you describe are ones that we're uh, all leaning in on. We're working extremely hard to try and make changes that are going to produce more housing. More, uh, more attainable housing in this city, uh, and all the other major issues that are facing right now are uh, consuming all, most of our hours. But at the same time, we do hear a lot of people about uh, wanting to make sure that Vancouver is an exciting and fun destination to be uh, and live and play in. And uh, I think uh, and the, these festivals that we're seeing, like Castellano, are really um, uh, serving up that that excitement that the the public's been really yearning for. And and I think we just uh, decided to enjoy with everybody else. <laughs> and, and so do you think it's fair when people would make the argument or, or I've seen some making this argument that it, the optics are off in that here's the mayor who uh, earlier this summer was seen on, on the yacht with other mayors, uh, even though that was that was justified and explained as it was a, a chance for, for the mayors to talk to each other or have some alone time. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's this mayor who's, who's now been shotgunning a beer on a stage, uh, who was on that yacht, uh, who talks about getting the swagger back to the city. Uh, but this is also a council that is raising property taxes by a lot in Vancouver with with property owners looking at a 9% increase year over year moving forward uh, that is still dealing with a, extremely expensive housing and a lack of housing. Uh, is it the optics of here's a mayor shotgunning a beer when there are these very pressing issues that need to be looked at or need to be focused on? Well, the issues that you describe are absolutely critical and they are being uh, addressed by this council. Uh, I would sort of say on the um, um, on the housing attainability and affordability piece, that is uh, something why we have made recent uh, attempts to sort of streamline the process for getting more and more housing built. We have the 3331 initiative, which is going to reduce our uh, permitting times to try and make sure that we can start getting shovels in the ground more quickly. Um, I think that the the, the concerns uh, are really are really are we doing our job? Are we getting the the work done to try and improve um, the the affordability and the ability to live and work in this city. And I think that uh, we're very proud of the work we're doing and and, uh, there's a lot more to come. Uh, Are the 333 and 1, which was a campaign promise, is that happening or is there a timeline that's in place for that? So we just, uh, I think in about one or two council meetings ago, we gave direction to staff to, to, uh, with those targets in mind. And so that is is now underway. We've uh, already had uh, major streamlining happening around permitting, including a new app that will allow to start with laneway homes that would be able to just go online, punch in a few numbers and the address and get a, a permit almost immediately, uh, depending on um, whether it qualifies. If there's a couple of issues, it'll print out a couple of things you need to fix before you get that permit. So work like that is happening, and, and uh, staff have been doing a great job in responding to that, uh, that direction from council. Um, there was a release put out earlier today from one of uh, your fellow councillors, from Councillor Christine Boyle. Uh, she has put out a release uh, saying that there needs to be, uh, they, they, you need to stop as a council from allowing modular housing, the temporary modular housing, that it should shouldn't actually be temporary, that temporary housing should not be taken away while there are not other units for people to go. And she, she cites one specific, uh, uh, the Larwell Place, uh, temporary housing. How do you respond to, to that idea of temporary housing being lost 
but without there being places for people. So I think Councillor Boyle has identified a challenge that we've been wrestling with for some time here, but the background um, is, is, has a lot more sort of subtlety to it. First of all, uh, when it comes to temporary modular housing, um, it, first of all, you need a place to put it. And Vancouver has been taking the lion's share of these sites. We've been providing city-owned land to try and put more of this temporary modular housing, and we're essentially running out of it. Hmm. Um, the other thing, too, is that um, the actual uh, assembling and construction of temporary modular housing is extraordinarily time-consuming and expensive, such that BC Housing now requires us to have a minimum 10-year uh, uh, timing time for, to allow it to be there. So tying up a piece of city-owned property for 10 years makes it extraordinary. So it's not something you just kind of uh, take down and move somewhere else really easily. Um, so those are kind of key issues that we need to look at. And of course, uh, one of the first acts that we did as a council is to get up to 19 new units that are going in. Right now, they're about just ready to be occupied on Main Street and on Ash and uh, 2nd Avenue. So um, we're very aware of this important demand, but we also have to work with our partners in the region. The, uh, there are other municipalities in Metro Vancouver that really should be taking more of these opportunities that are uh, that the province is bringing forward. Phone lines are open, star 9898 and 604-280-9898. My guest in studio is Mike Klassen, a Vancouver City Councillor. And if you have a question about anything council-related, if you have a question you'd like to put to the councillor, please do give us a call on the open line. Let's see what James in White Rock has to say. James, go ahead. Hi, I, I hear their virtue signaling from every single uh, level of government in this province, but I'm middle class. What are you doing for me? You're helping the developers. You're helping the people with low incomes. But at the end of the day, the middle class pay the bills and give you your money. And all I've seen so far is a 10% increase in taxes. So what are you doing for me? All right, James, thanks for that question. Councillor. Thanks for the question, James. Um, I think, first of all, we are working on plans that are going to try and make uh, more housing available. I was just recently in meetings talking about uh, potential uh, routes uh, that would be for more middle-class housing. And um, uh, certainly with our Missing Middle program, which we're going to be hearing more about this week in, on Council, uh, that's going to be an opportunity for to build more of the type of housing uh, that are going to be able to, to meet all needs uh, across across our sort of uh, economic specter of of the city. Um, And I would say that these are um, all really huge, big issues for us right now. But um, we, when we took office, we've been sort of cutting to the bone uh, for so many years. And and it was a race to the bottom that left our streets looking terrible, looking messy. We now have uh, our city staff out there cleaning up boulevards, cleaning up streets in a ways that, uh, that I think most Vancouverites really appreciate. And um, so as a result of that, that required us to make that one time. But uh, notwithstanding the report that came from city staff, we have a budget task force that is uh, bringing back uh, some recommendations this fall. And we are going to be implementing some of those that are going to try and bring down because this is not something that we can sustain. We're going to make sure that we get that tax rate down. Uh, following up on what that caller said, uh, interesting that he mentioned that because there was a guest on Mike Smith's show today and he's been in uh, the paper as well. He talked about the fact that he's a single dad his son is going off to university or college. He has a good job. He makes about $75,000 a year. They've been either renovicted or families have come back. So he they have to leave their basement suite by the end of this month. And he was saying that to the average rents 
for a two-bedroom suite would be about $3,500, $3,600. As somebody who makes an okay salary of $76,000, he can't afford it. And he's worried that they're going to be homeless. He doesn't know where they're going to go. Is that what you talk about when you talk about the middle class? Because shouldn't somebody making that salary be able to live maybe not in the nicest place in a city, but shouldn't they be able to find housing? This is a, a I hear from so many constituents on the same thing. I've heard uh, people who are, especially young people, when they start to make a good uh, salary and they realize that they can't afford to live here. So this is uh, a problem that essentially we've inherited, but it's one that we're taking very seriously and making sure that we have that housing supply. Uh, there's a lot of housing that's coming and we also need to make sure that we have the types of housing that are going to provide a range of income Incomes that uh, meet the needs of people on uh, the kind of incomes that you've described. And when you say a lot of housing is coming, what kind of timeline are you looking at? Even I drove by a, a new development that was just being started, not just being started, but I drove by it yesterday and it said 90 rental units uh, available 2025. Well, that's still a couple of years or at least a year and a half away. Uh, what kind of timeline are you looking at? So there are shovels in the ground on numerous projects right now, but certainly for our council, if we get them to public hearing and we can get them approved in the the next weeks and months, then you're usually looking at a two and a half, maybe a three-year timeline. So our goal is to try to make sure that we have as many uh, new units of housing being coming on stream in uh, 2025 and 2026. That's, That's probably the most realistic timeline. All right. I want to play for you just one other uh, clip. And this kind of goes to, uh, it's near the festival where you and the mayor were at this weekend. And this is a, a resident on U Street who has some concerns about the, the change in the configuration there. I would like to see them say, I'm sorry, this isn't working and realize and work on other things that have priorities in the city that are more important. There's a very dangerous section over here where people walk and also cyclists uh, are cycling and it's a shared path, but there have been some accidents there. So let's focus on what's important in the city, making a little area for people to sit on concrete blocks, which nobody ever uses, doesn't really make sense to me. I don't know. Uh, she talked a bit about the confusion as well on the section of U Street, which now is closed at different to point uh, parts and has uh, the sitting area. How do you respond to that? I would say that most of us uh, would say that the U Street um, changes are a bit of a misfire, and that's why staff are coming back with a number of new approaches on the one. Uh, the Cornwall uh, Avenue has been historically a place where there's been a lot of traffic uh, issues. Um, we're trying to make it safer um, during the... Uh, last uh, council meeting when we discussed this, um, there is a 40 kilometer an hour speed limit uh, in, in place between uh, McDonald all the way up to uh, Cypress Street. So that's the whole length of Cornwall Avenue in front of uh, Kitts Beach. And uh, I've actually, we asked staff, uh, based upon uh, my uh, my motion, to come back with a an idea of uh, some plans on a, on a cycling path that would be able to go along that route as well, which I think a lot of people have been asking for for a long time. So, uh, but on you. I would say just uh, uh, keep uh, keep watching. I think uh, there's going to be at least another attempt to try and make sure that that street has uh, the street calming and some activation. If it doesn't work, then we'll have to try something else. All right. Councillor, thank you so much for making the time and for coming into the studio today. My pleasure. 
Well, this one is definitely one that has people talking. A Saskatchewan judge says an emoji can amount to a contractual agreement and that judge has ordered a farmer to pay more than $82,000 for not delivering a product to a grain buyer after responding to a text message with a thumbs up image. This decision came from the Court of King's Bench. It said that a grain buyer with Southwest Terminal sent a text to farmers in March of 2021. And that text said the company was looking to buy 86 tons of flax for $17 per bushel. And that flax was to be delivered in the fall. The buyer, Kent Mickleborough, later spoke with Swift Current farmer Chris Achter on the phone and then texted a picture of a contract to deliver the flax in November. And he added to that text, please confirm flax contract. Well, Achter text back, texted back a thumbs up emoji. Fast forward to November, the flax was not delivered. Prices for the crop had increased and Mickleborough said that the emoji amounted to an agreement because he had texted numerous contracts to Atcher previously, who had also previously confirmed through text message and always the order was fulfilled. So at the heart of this case was the emoji contractual and the judge says, yes, in fact, it was. Well, David Fraser is joining us now, a Canadian internet and privacy lawyer who is also a partner with the firm of McInnes Cooper. David Fraser, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, happy to join you. What do you make of this case and the judge in this case saying, yes, that emoji is the same as saying yes or signing that is contractual? Uh, I'm not surprised, although certainly I think many of us know that emojis uh, can have multiple meanings and there can be some lack of clarity. And obviously this this case is actually about that. Uh, one party sent the thumbs up emoji to say, yes, I agree to the contract. The other party saw the thumbs up emoji as saying as essentially an acknowledgement of receipt, but not saying I agree. Um, and they thought there wasn't a contract. They didn't deliver the, the flax in the fall. And uh, there was a, a lawsuit over it. And, and in cases like this, the court is always trying to figure out really what did the parties intend and if they weren't actually on the same page, what's a reasonable understanding of what they meant to do and what's, what's kind of a, a commercially sensible thing to do about it? And we have written contracts on paper. We have written contracts by email or PDF. We have oral contracts. And often the courts are having to connect some dots or, or make some inferences. And, and based on the fact that these folks had a course of dealing, that's the legal term, like that, a history of agreeing to contracts by saying, yep, looks good, things like that by text message, that the court was able to, within the circumstances of that history, say it was reasonable for them to accept the contract with the thumbs up. And we also have laws in every province in Canada called the Electronic Commerce Act or the Electronic Transactions Act that says information shall not be denied legal effect or enforceability solely because it's in electronic form. And also says that you could signify acceptance of a contract by essentially anything electronic. And so I guess it stands as a lesson for us, for the rest of us, and particularly anybody who's buying flax or buying anything else and communicating by text message, you want to be clear about what it is that you mean. And maybe you want to avoid using emojis um, when there could be some uncertainty about what that uh, what that emoji means, particularly the thumbs up, which I often use it in, for example, our family group chat, say, look, I saw that, that's interesting, or, or kind of acknowledged, uh, or that's cool. Um, 
but it could be mean multiple things. Right. And I guess in this case, too, that the judge ruled that the thumbs up emoji did, in fact, meet signature requirements and therefore the farmer had breached the contract. Because I think that's where it also seems that if we're talking about a big contract and we're talking about eighty two thousand dollars, would the contract not have to be signed, whether it's an electronic signature or or some other kind of signature in that it did appear maybe to to people that the thumbs up was simply uh, admitting or, or, or confirming receipt of the contract. Yeah. And so, so that the requirements of something being in writing and something being signed is, it varies from province to province. It's within provincial jurisdiction and these electronic commerce acts or electronic transactions act say the requirement for a signature is satisfied by information in electronic form that has been adopted by somebody to use as their signature. And so that could be entering a pin on a, on a point of sale system that could be scribbling your signature with a little fingertip at a point of sale system or on a tablet. It could be typing your name in a web form. Those sorts of things can satisfy the requirements of an electronic signature. And uh, so certainly something like this could be. Now, if he'd sent, I don't know, an, an, a different emoji that might have been, you know, there's a pen on paper <laughs> emoji that might have that might have looked more like a traditional signature and could have been a little bit more clear. But frankly, the company that was supposed to be selling the flax, if they were unclear about what it was, they could have replied back to the text message and say, is your thumbs up agreeing to the contract? Or is your thumbs up that you got it? And a number of months passed where they didn't do any follow-up to find out what was going on with this flags contract. So it seems to be um, some fault on their part if they were unclear, uh, although I guess they were in their own minds absolutely convinced it was just acknowledging receipt, but they just lost a significant contract because they didn't uh, they didn't follow up. So I think that that may also be a, a relevant point to to ponder when it comes to these sorts of things. I thought it was an interesting point in this as well that the judge actually made a reference to the dictionary.com definition of what a thumbs up emoji actually means, saying <laughs> that this means approval, this uh, this means these things. I, I mean, but something you said too is that emojis especially, there is some room for interpretation. Well, that is. That, that, that's absolutely true. And, and that's the same with, with a number of other emojis. I, I know I mentioned I used the thumbs up in my family group chat and my young kids think that uh, it comes across as a bit sarcastic. It's like a like a sarcastic thumbs up, like way to go or, or something else like that. So there is there is room to maneuver, but it, it's not surprising that the judge would resort to a dictionary because it, when you're trying to figure out what somebody meant, the judge is trying to figure out, OK, well, what would an ordinary average person in these sorts of circumstances think. And, and the dictionary definition is a good starting point in, in trying to figure out, well, in, in common society and common usage, what does that little symbol mean? And this isn't the first case dealing with, with emojis. Uh, the courts have had to try to figure that out. Not, I, I'm not aware of any in, in connection with, is it an acceptance of a contract? but trying to figure out what people are actually meaning when they're sending things, particularly in, in kind of online harassment and, and other things like uh, things like that. 
Right, which I think, yeah, which we wouldn't be as surprised about perhaps if you're trying to look at what something means or what somebody meant by it. And even even like you said, when it means different things, I had read that as well, that for certain age groups, if you send a thumbs up, it can be considered hostile, even that people <laughs> don't receive it perhaps the way that you meant the thumbs up to be. Uh, even with something yeah. like this, if there is such a thing, I'm not sure if there is a flax emoji or a wheat emoji <laughs> or something, if you sent that and a unicorn. That might be your way of saying all good, let's move forward. But that doesn't yep. necessarily mean that's what it means. That's right. And, and you know, text message is not a very, uh, because it's obviously it's a very short medium. It doesn't provide the opportunity for a whole lot of verbiage. And, and I've seen people with their email signatures where the company, for, for example, if they're in sales or purchasing, where the company has automatically added in the email signature line, uh, the person that you're corresponding with is not authorized to enter into electronic contracts of a value greater than, for example, $10,000. So it's pretty clear that if, if you're negotiating a contract higher than that amount, it's got to be uh, outside of just agreement in that particular email. So you're putting people on, on notice. But it does make sense if you're regularly buying flax from these folks to uh, agree to uh, what what's the framework in which we're having, having these discussions just to avoid a situation like that. Because frankly, if you needed flax in the fall, and it wasn't delivered, you're going to have to turn around and find another place to get it. And the reason why they negotiated it months earlier was to lock in that good price. And so that $82,000 is just the difference between what they had originally offered to pay for it to be delivered in the fall compared to what they would have to pay to go out into the market at that particular time. And they could have been significantly left in the lurch. Imagine if there's no flax left. I, I, I would imagine if you're a farmer, that's a, that's a significant consequence, particularly if you're paying prepared to pay tens and thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in order to get that flax at that particular time. Right. And even the fact that this case did then have to go to court and with the time and the cost of doing that to get to, to the bottom of it, is the takeaway then not to depend on emojis or texting to work these things out or to assume that the thumbs up means everything's good, that there should still be some other follow up? Well, I think texting is fine when it comes to these sorts of things, as long as the people understand what it is that they're that they're agreeing to. Because, you know, frankly, if you're in the business of, of relatively casually buying significant quantities of this, that, or the other thing, and doing it quickly, and everybody knows what the contract terms are going to be and all these other sorts of things, um, then say, yes, we agree, or it's a deal, or something agreed, something like that, just kind of spell it out, Um you can you can be absolutely clear with very few characters compared to choosing to use an emoji where there could be room for interpretation. And you never want to have room for interpretation. You always want to have contractual certainty, particularly if you're, uh, I suppose, maybe theoretically betting a bet in the farm on getting flax in the fall. Right. Would, the, would it extend then as well, do you think, to shortcuts that people uh, make, especially when texting? And I know that TV shows often make fun of those so, or, or kind of show the generational differences in that somebody says, oh, they, they LOL'd mean that means lots of love. Well, no, actually, it doesn't. It means something <laughs> else and something else completely. And, and that's a more kind of G-rated one for sure. But there are others. Is it is it that we've kind of changed into this language of texting and emojis and shortened, condensed things? I think so, although that's not brand new. Um, we have had something like that in commerce, and particularly international commerce, for a very long time, something called incoterms, which is a, a standardized contract related to the, the shipping 
purchasing and shipping of, of goods. And so you'd say kind of X works per Inco terms 2012 or something like that. And so everybody who knows that, that area of business knows that you're, you're talking about it being delivered or picked up at the manufacturing facility and the person buying it is responsible for all these different things. And so there, there's an agreement and a consensus upon what Inco terms and those terms mean. Maybe we need to get to something like that when it comes to short text purchasing uh, agreements, or if you have a course of dealing and say, hey, look, I'm, I'm, thumbs up means I acknowledge and this other icon means I, I agree. Or in the meantime, let's just spell it out. I agree. <laughs> Got it. We'll check it. Things, things like that. It, how much exercise is it for your thumbs just to go that little extra, extra bit? Right. That's uh, that's probably the best way of being clear for everybody on all sides. Uh, do you think then, was this the correct decision by this judge? I think so. I, I think in, in the circumstances, and again, the court, court looked at the history between them. But I think it's also important that the seller didn't follow up to say, what did you mean by that? Or or haven't heard back from you about agreeing to the contract like a week later or something else like that. So it was reasonable for the person who was making the order to think and to be continue to be led to believe uh, that not only did they actually send what they thought was an agreement, but that there wasn't any back and forth subsequently to disabuse them or to make them think anything differently than than that. And so I think in these circumstances, I think it, it's the proper conclusion. Um, and I think it, it, I'm glad it's gotten the publicity it has, because this isn't going to be the last time that a court is going to have to deal with uh, questions related to emojis. And I think it's a well-reasoned decision looking not only at their course of dealing, but looking at the law related to electronic contracts and electronic signatures. David Fraser, thank you so much for your time and for joining us to talk about this today. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, it's probably not a huge surprise. People are looking for innovative and creative ways to get into the housing market to try and find a way to afford a house in Metro Vancouver as we see the prices still very, very high. So would you go so far as to pool your money with people that you don't really know, maybe you know them a little bit or not at all, pooling your money together to purchase a home that you then share? It's a trend we've talked about before, but it appears it is growing in popularity Popularity. Well, Noam Dolgan joins us now, founder of Collaborative Home Ownership. That is a website that talks about this very thing. And uh, Noam, thank you so much for being with us to talk more about this today. Thank you for covering this important housing alternative. Well, I remember, and I think this is what we were talking about. I'm sure there were other issues as well, but I remember talking to you about housing and about this specific idea many, many years ago. How have things changed or what have you changed or what have you seen as far as this becoming an idea that people are looking at quite seriously? Yeah, I think it really has grown with the escalation in housing prices and the increase in social isolation that's happening generally in society, but it was exacerbated by the pandemic. We're really seeing people looking at this as a pathway to get more housing, better housing, access to outdoor space, access to communities they couldn't otherwise get into. It's really growing as a pathway for people. So you're not talking, though, about duplexes or homes that have separate living spaces for, say, two or even three families. You're talking about people pooling their resources and then sharing the living space? Uh, Both. We definitely have people who are living collectively in a Golden Girls-type model, sharing housing 
each with their own bedroom and bathroom, maybe sitting area, and then sharing living rooms, dining rooms, and kitchens. But the majority of what we're seeing is people who are buying single titled lots, so a house, but with multiple suites in it. So homes that have two suites or properties with like a house and a laneway house. So they co-own the property, but they get a, 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 a living space that's equivalent to a duplex or, or a strata unit, but at a better price and with neighbors they already know and trust. Um, so it's, it, it becomes a good alternative that way. So either of them work. All right. I love that you made a Golden Girls reference. We don't often get Golden Girls references when we're talking ab- about things, but that is definitely a visual. And, and so different ages, too, you must be seeing people at different stages in life. Absolutely. We're seeing a lot of interest from young families, particularly people who just can't afford the $1.2 to $1.4 million entry point that a half duplex or a townhouse might cost you. And then also a lot of interest from, from boomers and retirees who want more community and more supportive environments in, in their living going forward. And from young millennials who are looking to just break into the market and are going to be living with roommates anyways. So see this as a viable pathway to build some equity and, uh, and make, make the stage work for them. Is it more complicated than when figuring out who is putting in what and contracts as far as this is how things are going to work, this is who has run of this area of the house or the home, or, or how complicated does it get? It doesn't have to be complicated. It really depends on the people and their vision and how much collectivity they want and the, the product, the type of house they're looking at and how it's divined, uh, divided. So, and then we have whole sorts of legal uh, agreements and experienced lawyers who can help guide you through those questions and, and our, our real estate agents like myself who, who know the questions to ask to help you figure out the exact allocation of expenses, the exact allocation of, of space, um, how you would structure the ownership to, to reflect that. So it doesn't have to be complicated, but it does need advanced thought and planning. What happens if one family or one party has more of a down payment than the other? So there are products, financial institutions, the credit unions like Van City have financing products where you can actually each have your own portion of the mortgage. So if you want to come in with more down payment and a smaller mortgage and I want to do a smaller down payment and a larger mortgage, we can make that work for you. So oftentimes the ownership stake is, is directly reflective of the of the space of housing that you need. And then your down payment just has to do with how much you're paying up front versus how much you're paying ongoing. Uh, but also sometimes we will structure it around your down payment amount. So if you're coming in with two thirds of the down payment, then you're a two thirds owner. So again, it really can be flexible and designed to suit your particular needs. And that kind of answered, I wanted to ask you about banks. So banks are okay with this or, or coming up with ways to make sure there are mortgages that fit these types of scenarios? Absolutely. Under Canadian law, everybody who's on title of a property is on a mortgage collectively. So in the end of the day, you are responsible for your partner's mortgage. But again, the legal agreement will protect you on that front. There are clauses around delinquency that help make sure that your partner can't bring you down. Um, but yes, Van City is the, is the biggest one in the area, which has a product called a mixer mortgage. Um, then Scotiabank has created a product particularly for unmarried couples where we're seeing more and more co-ownership happening. So the banks have definitely seen, seeing this as, a, as an important part of the, of the future of real estate 
and trying to adapt accordingly. Hmm. And you brought up something that uh, I was curious about as well, in that what if you are in that scenario where maybe somebody has fallen on harder times or lost a job, or maybe they want to move. They've decided that this isn't the home for them and it's time for them to move on. What happens when one of the parties wants to sell and one of the parties doesn't? Yeah, well, one of the exciting things of what we've been able to do here with Coho and with my work is we're now showing that there is a market for resale of a share in a property. Uh, we, I sold a, a half a house off of Commercial Drive a few months ago, and I'm selling another one right now on Turner Street uh, and other properties around the province where people are selling shares in their existing property and finding a new partner to come in. So in general, your legal agreement will lay out a three-part strategy for exit when one person needs to or wants to leave. The first option is a first right of refusal, a chance for your partner to buy you out. The next is to, is to try to find a new partner to come in and buy the share and take over the relationship. But if for some reason you can't find a new partner and you can't afford to buy them out, you are protected with the right to, after six months or a year, depending on the time frame that you guys set up in your legal agreement, force the sale of the property as a whole. So that it's a mechanism by, what, by which the person who wants to leave has pathways where they can get their money out, but the person who wants to stay has pathways to find a new partner or to buy them out so they don't, they're not forced out of their home. And I would imagine then, would you write that in the contract that if you are acquaintances or friends or even family, I suppose, that have gone into this co-ownership, would it be written into the contract that if somebody wants to leave, uh, that you couldn't just up and sell it to people maybe who are complete strangers that then would be coming into the space, that there would be some clarification over that? Absolutely, yes. That's, That's explicit in the contract that the remaining party has to approve any new buyer who comes in. And that's one of the really exciting things about these sales of, of a half a house is that not only do you come to terms with the departing party around price and dates and the like, but there's also a, a dating process with the remaining party to make sure that you are the right fit, uh, that you guys really like and trust each other and feel like you can have a solid collaboration going forward. Hmm. Uh, have you seen, what, what has been kind of the success rate as far as I know you've been doing this for quite some time? What, what have you seen as far as these types of scenarios and these, these collaborations working? Yeah, they, they, work, they work very well. I've met a lot of people who've been seeing my work and saying, oh, this is great. My parents bought with their best friends in the 1970s and I grew up in this and now I want to buy with some friends because they, they really like the model. Uh, these, these relationships tend to last anywhere from you know, 10 to 30-plus to years. And then when, when life takes you in separate directions, you move, you move on. So it, it, we like to say it's like a marriage, but a marriage that with, with an intended end date down the road. You know that it's not till death do you part. That at some point, you're going to choose to, to go separate directions. But as long as you're successfully communicating along the way and you have a strong legal agreement and a plan for exit when the person wants to go, it can, it can really be a success. So you know, every once in a while you hear about an issue that went to court. It's usually because they didn't have a legal agreement in place. Uh, but you know, 99.9% of these cases are, are really successful for you know, 5, 10, 30 years and create great housing for people along the way. Right, because I think everybody, well, maybe not everybody, but certainly there are a lot of people who could tell 
stories about neighbors they've had who were not great neighbors. Maybe you just didn't get along with the person and you've ended up, whether it's in a strata type scenario or a duplex where it just hasn't worked because you've ended up in that situation. So it seems like in this this scenario, at least you would have some more control over that. Yeah, I like to talk about it not just as an affordability hack, but really about creating better housing for less money. Because you do, you know your neighbors. When you buy into a half duplex or, or a condo, you really you don't get to know who the neighbors are. You just read some, some documents, tell you a little bit about the culture of the building. But you're taking your chances. And this is a much more deliberative process, a much more thorough and thought-out process. And you really get to feel confident and excited by your partners before you commit to it. And how much would you say you've seen an uh, increase or how much more uh, interest in this are you seeing recently? It's, it's hard to quantify, but we're definitely seeing the, the numbers of people coming out to our events and, and exploring this grow exponentially. I think the, the pandemic had a really big effect on that. You know, people realizing that they needed their housing to be a better environment and a more supportive environment. Uh, and the first of the rising continued rise in, in prices is driving people to this as well. So um, from some of the surveys that have been done by Ipsos and other groups, you know, five, 10 years ago, you know, 10 to 15 percent of people showed this as a pathway that they, they would consider. And now surveys are saying 50 percent of people as high as 75 percent in in the millennials generation and as high as 33 percent in the boomer generation and around 50 percent in the Gen Xers. So really, it's 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 growing in popularity. People are seeing it, seeing it succeed, um, and knowing that it's that it's a pathway for them. Interesting, indeed. Looking at the numbers, Noam, thank you so much for joining us today, and thanks so much for this discussion. Absolutely, I'm available at any time for anyone who wants to talk about how this might work for them. Well, you probably recognize that music. That is the theme music from the Beachcombers. If you were a fan of the show, you would also know these voices. Get those logs out of the way. I can't. Engine's dead. Punk up. Put honest. That uh, was Relic uh, speaking there uh, about, I believe that was the engine of the Persephone, was not working for Relic. It was a show that was seen around the world, filmed in Gibsons, and hugely, hugely successful. Well, a new attempt is being made to keep it alive, and in doing so, making an animated version of the beloved, iconic Beachcombers. Joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Josh Mepham. He is one of four partners with the company Slap happy. Josh, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me, Jill. Well, take us back to the beginning. How did this even start, this idea of making and producing, putting out an animated series based on the Beachcombers? Yeah, so it's an old colleague of mine, actually. The guy I worked for first out of film school named Blair Peters had a company called Studio B. And he retired, and he lives up in Gibsons now. And he was sitting in Molly's Reach, saw the poster on the wall of the cast, and thought, you know what? That would be great animated. So he called up Nick Orchard, who was a producer on the original series, and said, hey, Nick, do you think you could get the rights to this? And they did that. And then he thought, okay, now we got to find an animation studio to produce this. And because we go way back, I worked with Blair for 16 years. Um, there was a trust level there, and he knew that we had our own company now. And he brought it to us and said, hey, guys, do you want to try to make this show with me? And we said, 
That almost seems way too easy. And that's. Well, I'm, I'm, I think I'm simplifying it. <laughs> sure. But, <yeah. laughs> but even going back to what you said, getting the rights for it, that, that must have been. Uh, I mean, it's, it's great that that worked out, but that must have yeah. been a bit of a process. Well, yeah, I'm kind of glad I wasn't part of that because I think it probably was quite a process. And that was all in Nick Orchard. I think that was about four or five months of him tracking down the right people and a lot of back and forth. But we're thrilled that he made it happen. And so how do you go from that that then to the point of this is a show, like I mentioned, it's seen, I think, still in some places, seen around the yeah. world that people uh, loved the Beachcombers, tuned in to watch it. How do you kind of honor that legacy and make sure you're putting out an animated series that people are also going to love? Yeah, no, I get that. And, you know, we've had people say that, geez, don't mess up the legacy here. And, and you know, and I grew up watching the Beachcombers. It's important to me, too. So, you know, first of all, I'm 100% confident in the people I work with and the team we've already constructed that we would do it, uh, you know, do justice to the legacy. And we just think it's time for a new generation to discover the Beachcombers. And what better way than to, you know, use animation. This way we can bring everybody back and uh, start telling these great stories with those fantastic characters. You know, great, uh, great stories and great characters are always um, timely. And uh, I, I just think it's time for a new generation to discover this show. And there's also a lot of great potential in this show with issues that need to be covered, which is environmental stories, indigenous stories. Um, you know, there's just so much to do with the show. But you're right, we do have to make sure that we're... Um, you know, respecting the legacy of the show, and then we're confident that we will. And when you talk about the stories, again, will you be redoing stories that already happened on the original Beachcombers, or will the animated series have new stories? All new stories, yeah, all new. I mean, it's going to still feel like the Beachcombers. You know, we've got uh, a writer helping us out. Our pilot script was co-written by a fellow of the name Rick Drew, who was a writer on the original series. So we want to make sure that we've got people like Nick Orchard as well to say, you know, no, this feels like Beachcombers. We want to make sure, like I said, that we're respecting the legacy and staying true to it, while also modernizing it, though, too, and bringing it, updating it for this newer generation. Um, one of the other co-writers on the pilot script is a fellow named Daryl Dennis, an Indigenous actor and writer who is also making sure we're authentic with our Indigenous um, aspects of the series and you know regarding that we want to make jesse jesse jim the eyes and ears of the audience and and push that to the forefront of this because if you think back then i mean it was unheard of to have a show starring an indigenous young man and uh, we want to it was a trailblazing uh, show in that regard so we want to continue that Right, and, and there have been, I guess, not remakes of the show, but there was the Beachcombers kind of reunion and, and the new series where the characters from the original did come. Although I think in that case, he played a completely different character, even though it was a redo of the original yeah. show. Uh, so, so you'll have some leeway, I, I would imagine, to, like you say, keep it authentic in the Beachcombers-type feel, but with new yeah. stories and, and new characters joining the cast and that kind of thing. Yeah, there's, you know, we're so excited to tell new stories. We've already written about five or six springboards, they, they're called, which is little miniature story ideas, nuggets of an idea. And it's amazing how easy the ideas came out, which is a good sign. It means that, you know, these characters still inspire great, funny, unique, uh, adventurous stories. So, yeah, we're, we're really excited. How do you go about finding the right voices? 
Yeah, well, that's the tricky part, right? You got to make sure it's and like at the start of this when you played the the clip from the show. Those are very identifiable voices. So, but there's amazing voice actors out there that can uh, do some pretty great voice uh, matching. So we'd want it to, you know, we want people to feel that that coziness you felt on a Sunday night when you turned to the beachcombers and you heard Nick or or Relic, and and so we want a familiarity there, and that's going to be one of our challenges to find those right voices. So much has changed since the original Beachcombers aired and with an animated series. I mean, there wasn't streaming. uh, There weren't streaming services back then. There were there were a a finite number of ways to watch things and and get to things. I would imagine, too, that there will be those opportunities. So do you know where people will be able to see the new animated series? Well, our first target and who we're already talking to and they're tracking the project is obviously CBC. I mean, it's the. It's the go-to. So that's our that's our hope is that uh, we bring them back to rule the CBCs once again. Um, but of course, there's lots of other uh, home potential homes out there. Uh, we are going to be going to market in October. There's different giant animation industry markets around the world, and there's about f- sort of four key ones. And the next one coming up is in Cannes, France. It's called MEP. And basically everybody and anybody in the animation industry is there. And we'll have our package ready to pitch and and start talking to broadcasters around the world, which, as you mentioned, I mean, this show was a global hit. It was huge in Germany, huge in Australia. In fact, I heard, I don't know how true it is, that it was in syndication in Australia longer than Canada. (laughs) I would not be surprised by that. Uh, One other thing, though, when you talked about this idea came to... to, Blair. To Blair, you know, sitting at Molly's Reach. If people have been to the Sunshine Coast, they've probably seen Molly's Reach. Maybe they've been there as well. And it really does bring back those memories if you watched The Beachcombers because so much of it was the location and where the show was shot and and where people were. So how do you make that with an animated series where it it could be done really anywhere? Well, I wish I could show you some of our background art we've already created here on the radio because... (laughs) You know, it's just gorgeous. And it it is such a uniquely, stunningly beautiful part of the the world in Gibson's there. And I think that's why it was so popular around the world, because people got to see how uniquely beautiful it is there. Um, So we're just going to make sure that we imbue our art with that uh, unique beauty and and warmth and and quirkiness that Gibson's has. And you mentioned as well, sorry, in October, when would you, when would be the ideal time or when is the the goal to actually have this series out and something that people can watch? Well, typically, you know, once you get a broadcaster on board, you're looking at development um, where you do some back and forth and making sure that they and you are on the same page, what this series is going to be and make sure they're happy with it. And that can take, you know, we've, we've been lucky and had that take three months and other times it takes a year. So, you know, you could ballpark that after a green light, you're looking, and then you've got to produce the show. So let's say you're looking at a year of development, then you've got to produce the show. So we're still looking at a good year and a half before um, people can tune in. But we'll be providing updates as we go, of course, and uh, hopefully it's all much sooner than later. We will stay tuned to see what happens next with this. (laughs) Josh, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.